Hey guys, welcome back to episode 8 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Real on Podcast Book 4. Today we'll be reading chapter 8, but first a recap of chapter 7. McCracken is going to hurt SQ. Constance overheard it from the listener's mind, and she actually knew how to show the others what she saw into their minds. It was almost a sort of video of what had just happened on the listener's side of things. The ten men mentioned the word fair in the vision, but after some brainstorming afterward, the children realized there were so many possibilities to what it could have meant. No one knew what to do, they just had to warn SQ. Kate was about to take off and try all the different places to at least try and warn him herself. But before she could leave, Ty Lai announced that Rennie had the answer to where SQ really was. Chapter 8. A Quest to Rescue SQ and a Second Chance Encounter Rennie had reasons for not speaking up sooner, the main one being that the answer hadn't occurred to him until just before Ty had made his announcement. Stonetown was a large city, and Mr. Benedict's community of family and friends were comfortably squashed together in two houses in a single neighborhood. Ever since the society had come together here, here was where they spent almost all of their time. Rennie knew a great deal about Stonetown, of course. He could name all the neighborhoods, he knew the history, the geography, the architectural trends, but he was really only personally familiar with a few neighborhoods. His home, his life, was in this house with these friends. In short, with a few exceptions, Rennie didn't know how long it took to get places. Unlike Sticky, who had absorbed extensive knowledge of local traffic patterns, simply by reading and remembering everything, even the most boring things, Rennie hadn't realized it would take so long to reach those far-flung neighborhoods. Once he did, he knew that McCracken's warehouse was in the dockyards. Hadn't Constance said earlier that McCracken woke the listener up himself? That had been scarcely half an hour since he'd stood at their courtyard gate. And only a few minutes ago, he'd already been settled in at the warehouse, long enough to have removed his shoes and his suit jacket. Long enough to have eaten most of an apple. He'd gotten comfortable. Nor was it the least bit lightly that McCracken would have sat on the hood of a car if it had been in the warehouse for only a few minutes. After an hour's drive across town, the car's engine would be extremely hot. Its hood better suited for cooking on than sitting on. The engine had a time to cool, though, and so McCracken had been there a while already. All the clues were there. The dockyards were the only place close enough to make sense. But just because Rennie knew where to find the warehouse didn't mean he thought Kate should fly to SQ's rescue, not without all the facts available. What if they'd overlooked something? What if she were seen by one of the ten men? They'd know she was in town. Worse yet, what if she were actually confronted by the ten men? What if she had to face McCracken? All of this and more had been racing through Rennie's brain. Now, with everyone staring at him, Rennie felt even more pressure. He needed time. Yet, there wasn't time. I think, Rennie faltered, listen. The dockyards, Ty squealed, unable to contain himself any longer. He thinks crawling saw SQ at the street fair. And with that, Kate was off. The sound of Ty's gasp was lost in the greater commotion of gasping, jumping, and other startled responses to Kate's sudden explosive movement. Sticky made a kind of yelp with his mouth closed, for example, and Constance passed gasp. These sounds, too, made less of an impression than the series of thumps in the house, which the older three knew to be from Kate's boots hitting the stairlings, as she descended, banister to banister, all the way to the bottom of the floor. Rennie looked at the intercom speaker. He opened his mouth and closed it again. There was no point trying to stop her now, not unless he was convinced Kate was doing the wrong thing, in which case she might listen to him. He wasn't convinced, though. He was afraid for her, he had the concerns about risks, but his own notions of risks were very different from Kate's, and now was no time for argument. Let it go, Rennie, Constance said quietly. Rennie turned to her. She looked exhausted. She looked annoyed, but that was nothing unusual. 
In fact, she could tell you she was trying not to look annoyed for his sake, which was unusual. You can't do anything about it, Constance said. So stop worrying like that. I'm trying not to know what you're thinking and feeling, but I'm not exactly at the top of my game, okay? Okay, Winnie said, quickly composing his thoughts. Of course, thanks. Constance rolled her eyes. Sticky and Ty, meanwhile, had gone to the window, for Sticky knew that Kate would appear much sooner than one would expect, and he guessed correctly that Ty would like to see her go. Sure enough, in the mere moments they had heard the sound of Captain Plug's motorcycle firing up, and just as Rennie and Constance arrived at the window, the motorcycle streaked into view from around the corner of the house. To everyone's surprise, Captain Plug herself appeared to be riding it. They all recognized her helmet, uniform, and stocky build. I don't understand, Sticky said. How is it that... But even as he spoke, the motorcycle came to the courtyard gate and slowed not quite to a stop, and the person they had assumed to be Captain Plug kicked the gate handle open with one boot, drove through the gate, kicked the gate close behind her, and screeched off down the street with the cycle's front wheel in the air. So that would be Kate, Constance said, and they all nodded. Ripping down a back alley, Kate considered how long it had been since McCracken and the Scaredy Cats set out to find SQ. Ten minutes? Fifteen? It depended on how much time had passed between the actual event and Constance's panicky announcement. And she was still a few minutes away herself. Oh, SQ, Kate thought. Please get on a bus. Go somewhere unexpected. Don't be poking around the street fair. Ahead of her, a delivery van blocked the alley. On one side of it, the driver stood handing boxes through a doorway. On the other side was just enough space between the van and alley wall for Kate to squeeze through with an inch to spare. She took a gap at top speed, and over the roar of the motor, she heard the driver shouting an alarm, followed by the sound of a box being dropped. Sorry, Kate muttered, rocketing from the alley, across Envy Street, and into another alley. She was avoiding traffic, making good time. She already ditched the captain plug disguise, and the uniform padded with a couple of hidden pillows, if it was creating too much wind resistance. But she got well clear of the neighborhood first. If any neighbors had seen her go, Kate might have given them a new impression of Captain Plug's skills, but she'd given them no reason to think anyone else was staying at Mr. Benedict's house. Now she was approaching Second and Chance Streets, and from behind the tinted visor of Captain Plug's oversized helmet, Kate kept her eyes peeled for ten men, for SQ, for anything that might tip her off to their location. She was surprised to discover a great many people leaving the area in a hurry. They were in the streets and the alleys alike, and Kate was forced to slow down and proceed more carefully. Parents ushered along children with faces painted and balloons tightly clutched. Couples held hands and exchanged nervous glances. Random individuals pressed for a word with chopping bags and arms full of knickknacks, all moving in an opposite direction of Kate. Everyone looked agitated, some annoyed, some frightened, some confused. This did not seem good. And now Kate heard something in the distance ahead. A man was shouting into a megaphone, but she couldn't make out what he was saying. Slowing to a crawl, she called out to a frazzled-looking woman carrying a basket of handcrafted candles. They say it's a gas leak, the woman explained, hurrying past. They're evacuating the area. Kate considered this information for half a second. Then she rolled on. This was entirely too coincidental for a development. She thought it was very unlikely that there was actually a gas leak in the area. What was in the area might well prove to be just as dangerous, though, and she rode now with every muscle tensed, studying every face and figure as she passed. There were a few businessmen in the crowd, but Kate dismissed them with a glance. Now, at the tail end of the evacuation, she was mainly seeing street vendors, the folks who had been most reluctant to abandon their booths, who had stayed longer than anyone else, either locking things up or gathering as much of their precious wares as they could carry. She saw a flower vendor carrying an impossible quantity of flowers. He looked like a human vase, followed by Cactoris stumbling along with an easel and rolled-up canvases. She passed a jangling, glittering jewelry maker, wearing all her own jewelry. Kate passed an organ grinder with a monkey, limping clown with a red 
Wig Askew, a one-man band struggling under the weight of his own instruments. No Tenmen, though, and no SQ. The crowd had thinned now. Kate passed a few final stagglers as she headed directly toward the sound of the megaphone. Turning onto Second Street, just as the man wielding the megaphone was rounding the corner at a trot, he was a sweaty, nervous-looking fellow in a blue t-shirt and said staff on the front of it. He stared at the sight of Kate and tried waving her back. You can't be here, miss, he said. There's a... Kate stopped the motorcycle. Who told you there's a gas leak? Guy from the city, the man said, hurrying on. I don't know. He gave me the megaphone and told me to get everybody out. Listen, I've tried to be a good citizen here, but I need to look out for myself too, you know? I can't be responsible. Absolutely, Kate said. Well done, citizen. I'll take it from here. She revved the throttle and proceeded down Y Street, veering around two food trucks that blocked the way. There was no one in sight. Empty stalls lined the street on both sides. Paper plates, napkins, and other assorted trash drifted and skittered along the ground, and a warm breeze that smelled of fried dough. The buildings framing the street showed no signs of life. This place had gone far from the street fair to a ghost town in a matter of minutes. Kate thought, but why? At the end of the block, Kate turned on a chance street, similarly desolate and abandoned. Her keen eyes scanned every doorway and window, traveling along rooftops and fire escapes. She passed an empty hot dog stand, an empty balloon stand, and an empty bookstall. She scurried a huge industrial trash bin with a wary eye, but there was no one behind it. She was beginning to think that perhaps this was truly a gas leak, and there was nothing for her to do here after all. Not SQ to warn, no Timmin to avoid. When she spied, farther down the street, a lone figure sitting at a table. Kate stopped the motorcycle. The table was draped with a low-hanging black tablecloth, on the front of which, in glittering silver letters, were the words Madame Cardam's Palm Reading, Fortune-Telling Advice. The figure wore a black shawl and sat hunched, her face concealed partly by the shawl and partly by the locks of unruly black hair that dangled from it. The black gloved hands she held before her trembling, from fear, from affliction, at the edge of the tabletop. Kate narrowed her eyes. Something was definitely not right. The fortune teller had not even glanced in her direction. Could she not hear the rumbling motorcycle? Was she too frightened to move? That seemed more likely. Even more likely, Kate thought, was that this was some kind of trap. She could just turn around and leave, right now. Maybe the woman knew about SQ, or maybe she needed help, or maybe both. But if this was a trap, then the last thing Kate should do. Kate didn't even finish the thought. Her heart beating fast, everything on her on high alert. She crept forward on the motorcycle, studying the area around the fortune teller as she approached. She noted the manhole cover in the street, the ice cream truck blocking the way not far behind it, and the fire hydrant at the corner. Nothing seemed to miss except for the figure, who still did not look up. Hello? Excuse me? said Kate as she drew near. No response. Kate shut off the engine, put the kickstand down, and slid off the motorcycle. The gloved hands on the table continued to tremble violently, making faint tapping sounds against the tablecloth. Kate removed Captain Plug's helmet, which was so large that it kept sliding forward and obscuring part of her vision. She glanced around again, saw no one. She took a step forward on the table. Tap, 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 went the trembling fingers, so faintly as to be barely audible. And yet, familiar, Kate thought. The tapping was familiar. Sometimes the fingers seemed to linger on the table. Sometimes they touched it for the merest instant. Sometimes they trembled without touching the table at all. Morse code. It was Morse code. Kate froze, holding her breath, and watched the fingers carefully. Go, trap, go, trap, go, trap. Can I help you, ma'am? Kate said rather too loudly. She shifted the helmet, tugging it under her left arm while her right hand slipped casually inside her jacket. Her heart was hammering so loud in her ears that she could scarcely hear her own words. If this was indeed a trap, what was her best move? Probably to pretend she didn't even realize it was a trap. I don't wish to disturb you, she said a little more naturally this time. But evidently there's a gas leak. You should really come with me. No, go, trap. 
Well, okay, suit yourself, Kate said with a sigh. She spoke soothingly as if to a child. I'll leave you alone, but I'm going to let the police know you're still here, okay? They'll come and help you. I'm sure they'll be here soon. She could step backward toward the motorcycle. I wouldn't waste my breath, dearie, said a familiar deep voice. If the biddy knows how to speak, she's given no sign of it. Kate whirled to see McCracken filling the doorway of the ice cream truck. In one of his massive hands, he held an ice cream cone. Evidently, he had served himself. He seemed in no hurry to prevent Kate from fleeing, and in her peripheral vision, Kate saw the reason. The Katz brothers had appeared at the intersection of second and chance. Whichever direction she chose, she would have to get past a tenman. Kate stood where she was, trying to decide the best course of action. McCracken was taking his time with the ice cream cone, and the scaredy cats were approaching slowly and cautiously, their eyes constantly on the lookout. She had less than a minute before she would be too tightly beamed in to choose. I believe you've grown, McCracken said, stepping casually from the ice cream truck, which seemed to grow itself, sitting higher on its axles than what it had been when McCracken was inside. You seem larger than I remember. I suppose that happens with children. You've grown too, Kate said. I suppose that happens with prisoners. McCracken chuckled. Only those who take advantage of the exercise equipment and the, how shall I put it, the extra time available to them. Oh, dear Kate, I've had so much extra time these last years, a luxury I owe to you and your father. How can I repay you? Would you care for some of my ice cream? What flavor is it? Kate asked. She was watching the Katz brothers out of the corner of her eye. Neither of them was carrying a briefcase. And where was McCracken's? As if in answer to that unspoken question, McCracken reached back through the ice cream truck doorway and slid his briefcase into view. In answer to her spoken one, he said, Rocky Road. It seems rather symbolic. I haven't had ice cream in a long time, my little chickadee. Now how does that saying go? Ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. Don't tell me, said Kate. You're about to make a dumb joke about me screaming. You can save your breath. McCracken looked perturbed. The Katz brothers had gradually widened the distance between each other, the better to cover more area. Kate might be able to blast between them on the motorcycle, if she were already on the motorcycle. If the motor was already running... Yet here she stood, and she knew how fast McCracken was with the briefcase. Also, she realized jumping onto the motorcycle was precisely what he expected her to do. And so Kate made her decision. She waited. McCracken, regaining his equanimity, tossed aside the remainder of the ice cream cone. If he was puzzled by her lingering, he didn't show it. Perhaps she had made the wrong decision. I came here, McCracken said, licking his fingers, because I had reason to think that fine young man S. Cubadalian was in the area. I hope to ask him some questions. I don't suppose you've seen him. Perhaps you had plans to join him at the street fair. The Katz brothers had drawn with a dozen paces. Kate could smell their expensive, spicy cologne. If the breeze had been blowing from the opposite direction, she thought ruefully she would have known that McCracken was close by. You have ice cream on your cheek, Kate said to McCracken, resisting at an urge to point. She cupped her hands exactly where they were, and she stood very still. Maybe you should use your handkerchief to clean it off. Or better still, blow my nose with it, McCracken said with a roll of his eyes. I know you'd love to see me knock myself out with my own handkerchief, sugar plum, but today isn't your day. Now then, you didn't answer my question. I haven't seen SQ, Kate said, but if I do, I'll be sure to. Now, shouted one of the Katz brothers, lunging toward Kate. Instantly, his lunge, accompanied by a whispery swit swit, became a plunge. For a moment, he appeared to be trying to run on his knees. Then he twisted and collapsed onto his back revealing the two feathered darts neatly pinned in his handkerchief at the breast pocket of his suit that Kate had fired from her tranquilizer gun. The other cat's brother had skirted sideways to the moment his brother stumbled, and he proved to be so fast that Kate saw her third dart miss him by a good eight inches. At the same time, Kate saw McCracken reaching into his briefcase, and she crouched behind the motorcycle for cover. She could hear the rapid-fire footsteps of the cat's brother as he raced to take cover himself. 
behind the ice cream truck from the sound of it. This fortune teller, too, had dropped out of view behind her table. Everyone was hiding except for McCracken. Bravo, Kate, boomed the tinman. It hadn't occurred to me that you would be in the dark game now. My, how things change, just like your father, eh? I believe you may even be a little faster than he was. He was always just a touch too slow to have success with me, you know, and I imagine he's even slower now. As he spoke, McCracken made no effort to move away. He stood precisely where he'd been standing, and the confidence that this must have required was unnerving. He had seen Kate use the tranquilizer gun. He knew how fast she was, how true her aim, and yet there he stood, speaking in the most carefree tone. Felix, McCracken called, why not join us? It's only a dark gun, old fellow. Kate heard the cat's brother reply from behind the ice cream truck. I have an aversion to darts, my dear, he called with a laugh. And it's easier for you, you know. You've borrowed my briefcase. Very true, McCracken said. He has a point, Kate. Our supplies are limited at present. Why, Garrett, you remember Garrett, I'm sure. Garrett had to borrow a briefcase as well, and Sharp was compelled to acquire one from a businessman we've encountered on the street. It's of sad quality, however, and they've had to share supplies between the two of them. Ah, here they are now. Kate felt goosebumps run on her arms. She peeked over the top of the motorcycle. Sure enough, walking toward them from the intersection beyond the ice cream truck were the two of the most dangerous tin men alive. She recognized the bespeckled Sharp and the bearded, fat-faced Garrett instantly. She had spent far too much time in their company, had hoped to never see them again in her life. Yet here they were, impeccably dressed, of course. Now won't you plumb out and play, Kate? McCracken called when he agreed to his associates. It's a veritable party, and I know you have three darts left in your gun. A present for each of us, yes? Kate wiped her brow with her sleeve and took a deep breath. She had wasted a dart on the first cat's brother, or it would have been sufficient, but she had been overexcited. But she needed to be steady now if she had ever been. Do join us, Kate, came Sharp's familiar voice. We've missed you. Yes, it's been ever so long, echoed Garrett. We haven't had fun in years, not really, and that's all thanks to you. I'm afraid she's a part of pooper, gentlemen, McCracken said. Simply isn't in the mood today. Very well, my dear, we'll bring the party to you. You'll notice I'm not offering you a chance to surrender. No, you had your best use your darts wisely, for we do mean you harm. Did you hear me clearly, Kate? We mean you harm. McCracken was enjoying himself, toying with her. He was looking forward to a fight they knew that he would win. Shall we, gentlemen? Footsteps approached. Kate took another deep breath. You can do this, she told herself, with a little help. Hey, fortune teller lady, she sang out. If you have any tricks up your sleeve, now would be the time. The fortune teller did indeed have tricks in store. The cloth had been draping the table flew upward like a theater curtain, and the table overturned. When the cloth fell aside, it revealed a not a hunched woman in a shawl, but a tall man with dirty blonde hair and ocean blue eyes that matched Kate's exactly. What Kate had suspected turned out to be the case. The fortune teller was her own father. Let fly, Kate, Milligan said. I've got you covered. Indeed, Milligan had been firing his tranquilizer gun from the moment he appeared. Swit, 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 swit. The tin men had scattered left and right. Thwack, thwack, when the sounds of briefcase deflecting darts. Not fair, snarled Garrett when the handle on his briefcase broke loose. It was Kate Stark that caught his shoulder and he struggled to regain his grip. Most unfair, such shoddy materials. Then last he uttered and sank to his knees, then to his side and closed his eyes. Kate was already on the move. She didn't dare mount the motorcycle, she'd be too exposed. But with Captain Plug's helmet back on her head, she began pushing the motorcycle along, crouching behind it for cover. Sharp and McCracken were concentrating on Milligan, who was using the overturned table for his own cover. But when Kate fired a dart at McCracken, which McCracken narrowly dodged, the two men spun in union and flung pencils at her direction. Sharps ricocheted off a hangar bar. McCracken's glance off her helmet with a cracking sound that made her ears ring. 
Kate kept moving, and the men were compelled to refocus their attention on Milligan, who had just shoved more darts into his tranquilizer gun. Kate headed for the ice cream truck. Felix Katz had been hiding behind it, but perhaps he would run at the sight of her, knowing she had a tranquilizer gun. She only wanted half a minute to reload in relative safety. She was down to one dart in the gun. Katz was not behind the ice cream truck. Kate stopped to check beneath it. No Katz. In the near distance, she could see the feet of McCracken and Sharp moving left and right, in a sort of lethal dance. They were avoiding Milligan's attacks, looking for an opportunity to charge him. But once Kate had reloaded, she could draw a bead on them from behind the truck. They would be caught in the crossfire between her and Milligan. Kate let the motorcycle rest on its kickstand and reached inside her jacket for more darts. No sooner had she done so, however, than Kate felt the tranquilizer gun yank from her other hand. With a cry, she grabbed at it, but it had already flown upward out of reach. Her eyes followed as it sailed on top of the ice cream truck, where Kat stood leering at her from above. He had unfastened his necktie and whipped it down to snatch Kate's weapon away, and now he dropped lightly onto the other side of the motorcycle, keeping it between him and Kate, still wary even with his newfound advantage. They stood facing each other, only a few paces separating them. "'So sorry,' said the tin man. "'Were you hoping to reload your gun in peace? You should have known I'd be waiting for a moment like that.' You know what's funny, Kate said. It still had a dart in it. You could have used it against me, but you thought it was empty, so you left it up there. Katz twitched. Ah, well, he said, frowning. I still have my weapons, and you have none. This conversation is at an end. Shaking his wrist to expose two large silver watches from beneath his suit cuffs, Katz thrust both hands toward Kate, as if trying to shove her from a distance. The shock watches emitted their familiar electrical whine. The wire shot forth from each of them, and Kate, from Felix Katz's perspective, disappeared. In fact, Kate had timed her backbend perfectly. She remained poised like that, her body in a graceful arch, one hand pressing against the ground behind her head, until the electrical wires, having missed their target, recoiled into their watches. Reversing her original motion, Kate snapped back up into a standing position, just as Katz was springing on the motorcycle with a snarl. She saw his eyes widen mid-leap when he saw the dart in her hand. No, he cried simply. Yep, Kate replied as she made her throw. Then she nimbly stepped aside, where Kat's momentum carried him, lurching forward several paces, before he collapsed into the pavement, unconscious. "'You didn't really think this one through, Felix,' she said, turning back toward the motorcycle. And there stood McCracken. He seemed to appear out of nowhere, boiling up into view like a black smoke from a fire. And indeed, minutes radiated off him like heat. The look on his face was one Kate had never seen before, and it made her shudder. Gone was his usual easy smile. McCracken was taking her seriously now, and he was angry.' "'You are being very bad,' McCracken roared. Kate wanted to run, but she dared not turn her back on him. She tried to ready herself for whatever attack he threw at her, but she was not prepared for what he actually did throw at her, which was the motorcycle. She ducked beneath it, but one of the tires struck her helmet in an indirect blow and knocked it clean from her head. She stumbled, trying to get her legs beneath her. At the same time, on the other side of the ice cream truck, Sharp's voice rang out, "'Watch your feet, lovely!' McCracken, who had been about to pounce on Kate, instead leaped straight up into the air, a dart shot out from beneath the ice cream truck, passing beneath McCracken's feet and skittering across the pavement beyond. The motorcycle had surprised Kate, but what happened next shocked her. The instant McCracken's feet hit the ground, he slammed his shoulder against the side of the ice cream truck, like a man trying to break down a door. His feet drove the sledgehammers against the pavement, his arms thrust out and up, and the ice cream truck flipped over onto its side. The next few moments were a chaos of motion, as Kate shot forward and snatched up McCracken's briefcase. He put it down to throw the motorcycle. McCracken spun around looking for it, and Milligan, his legs trapped beneath the overturned ice cream truck, and his tranquilizer gun nowhere to be seen, shouting a warning to Kate. Sharp was swooping in on her from the side. Kate, spying her own tranquilizer gun on the ground, made an instant calculation. 
She wouldn't have time to pick it up before Sharp was upon her. He had the better angle, but she could get close. And so she ran, and two heartbeats later, Sharp had her in a bear hug from behind, pinning her arms to her sides. The tranquilizer gun lay inches from her feet. So close. There, there, Chicky, Sharp said. No more toys for you. McCracken appeared, stepping up to the side of the overturned truck, so that he looked triumphantly down upon them all. Don't let her go anywhere with my briefcase, Sharp. There's a good fellow. And keep close tabs on your own. He needed to have worn Sharp, who was clutching the handle of his own briefcase so tightly that his knuckles were white. Looking down at Milligan, McCracken said, You've grown rusty, old sport. Still, that was fun. Milligan, visible only from the waist up, had laced his fingers together behind his head. Who's to say it's over? He said calmly. You all right, Kate? I'm fine, Kate growled, struggling in Sharp's grip. She shifted her feet to the left, then to the right. She won't be for long, Milligan, I assure you, McCracken said. Honestly, I'm beyond annoyed at the trouble you've caused us. I suppose after these years of being locked up, I've quite lost my patience. I believe some punishment is in order. You realize you're threatening my daughter, Milligan said. McCracken chuckled. He put his hands on his hips. Oh, I'm quite aware of what I'm doing. And if you think... Excuse me for a moment, Milligan interrupted, then called. What are you waiting for, Kate? Kate grunted, still shifting her weight about. Just getting the right angle. With that, Kate kicked the tranquilizer gun. It had been important to hit it just so, not only to aim it, but to avoid damaging it. It was really more of a sideways sweep than a kick, and she executed it perfectly, sending the gun skittering lightly across the pavement into Milligan's waiting hand. She heard Sharp gasp with realization as she bent forward, lifting his feet off the ground, and turned so that his back was facing Milligan. She heard the familiar and most welcoming swit as the last start of her gun found its home. Then Sharp released his grip with a sigh and slumped to the ground, a feathered dart protruding from his rump. Kate turned to see Milligan now aiming the tranquilizer gun at McCracken, who had for once been caught flat-footed. He stood in the ice cream truck in a half-crouch, arms stretched in opposite directions, with absolutely no good place to go. "'I'm not the only rusty one,' Milligan observed. Kate, who knew that the gun was empty, did her best to appear calm. She tried, in fact, to look as though the game were won. It seemed to work. McCracken, glancing at her face and then back at Milligan, made no move. "'Well,' the ten minutes of the shrug of his massive shoulders, "'let's get on with it.' First, I want to show you something,' said Milligan, and with the gun still leveled at McCracken, he reached inside his jacket. A canvas jacket, much like Kate's, produced a feather dart and shoved it into the tranquilizer gun. McCracken's shoulders drooped now. "'You can't be serious. It was empty?' "'Quite,' Milligan said, reaching into his jacket again. He loaded another dart into the gun, then a third, then a fourth. "'Come now,' McCracken chided. "'Must I wait until—' "'This will sting a little,' McCracken said. A dart bloomed in McCracken's left shoulder.' Flinching, he uttered an angry growl. Then a look of uncertainty came into his face. I'm still standing, he observed. Kate felt her mouth go dry. A moment passed, then another. The corners of McCracken's mouth twitched upward. He took a step forward as if to jump down from an ice cream truck, but Milligan pointed the tranquilizer gun directly at his nose. You wouldn't shoot me in the face, McCracken said, hesitating. That's not your style. You're right, Milligan said, and he fired a dart at the Timman's leg. That hurts, McCracken snarled furiously. He yanked the darts from his leg and his shoulder and drew both arms back to throw them. If your serum isn't strong enough... Oh, those darts didn't have any serum, Milligan said. I just wanted you to feel them. Feathers appeared in McCracken's other shoulder. The Timon let loose a howl of rage, flung the darts down at his feet like a child throwing a tantrum, and collapsed into the ice cream truck with a tremendous bang. Kate flew to Milligan's side. How badly are you hurt? She asked, grabbing his hand and kissing his cheek. Are your legs broken? Only very lightly, I think, Milligan said, smiling. He brushed a stray lock of hair out of his daughter's eyes. In the distance, they could hear sirens approaching. You were really amazing, Katie Cat. When did you know it was me? Who else could it be, Kate said. I don't know anyone else could pull off that trembling hand Morse code trick. But how did you happen to be here? 
She was stretching out on the ground beside her father now, resting her head in the crook of his arm. I thought there were spies in every airport in Stonetown. Oh, there are, Milligan said, and when the one I encounter wakes up, I'm sure he'll make his report right away. None of that matters now. I just wasn't about to leave you here in the city without me. I heard Rennie's bulletin on the radio, and I knew where SQ was supposed to leave messages. In fact, I was already on my way here to see what I could discover about what Rennie put out the word. Kate looked at her father sidewise. So it was you who got SQ safely away, wasn't it? You're the guy from the city who raised the alarm about a gas leak. Yes, I found him right away, told him he was in danger, and set him off in disguise. You didn't happen to see a limping clown, did you? I did, Milligan grinned. What better way to disguise those big feet than clown shoes, right? He found them very uncomfortable, though. The original clown had smaller feet, and we had no time to remove the poor fellow's paste paint, so I sent him off with a great load of flowers to hide behind. I saw him too, Kate laughed. Then she grew serious. She reached over and swatted Milligan's on the chest. I can't believe you shot those extra darts of McCracken just to hurt him. That's not the way you taught me. I mean, I enjoyed it, but still. Give me a pass on this one, Katie, Milligan said. He threatened my daughter. Kate gave him a reproachful look. Then he smiled and leaned back again. There's more to it than that, isn't there? Milligan chuckled. The first two had broken ampoules. What was I supposed to do? Let him know? The sirens were growing louder. Kate knew what some of Milligan's agents would be arriving with the emergency professionals. Soon he would have medical attention and the unconscious tenman would be taken into custody. The full significance of it all had hardly begun to sink in. She knew. For the moment, she let herself rest there, snuggled up against her injured father. The two of them gazed upward, watching clouds move across the blue sky. Milligan cleared his throat. Kate, he said quietly, I hope you know how proud of you I am. You are already as skilled as many of my agents, and even more skilled than some, and I want you to be happy. You get to choose what you do with your own life. It's just, he faltered. You just want to protect me, Kate said, nodding. I know. It's okay, Dad. Milligan nodded, too. Kate heard him sniff, felt his wipe his eyes with his other arm. She kept her own eyes on the clouds. That one reminds me of Mr. Benedict, Kate said after a moment. She pointed. See the profile with the lumpy nose? You're right, Milligan said with a little laugh. And look at that one. It's like a valentine. Kate squinted. A valentine drawn by a kid, maybe. But I see it. Milligan gave her a squeeze, and for some time they lay there, a man trapped beneath an ice cream truck, his legs lightly broken, and his daughter with an aching head, the two of them surrounded by unconscious men in elegant suits. The sirens grew louder and louder. They both felt remarkably content. Mm-hmm.